Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, joined by Andre. Andre, how are you doing so far? How is your Thursday? I am still applying to jobs, Ryan. I am still applying to jobs. I need a job. I want a job. So please, people, if you're listening to this, hire me. I am primarily looking at the DC area, but please, I want to move so bad. I, like all I want, Santa, is a job. Oh, what so, a shameless plug <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners. Um, but hey, then again, you know, if you can get a job through the podcast, uh, I might follow you uh, on that path. Uh, anyway, there is a lot going on around the world. Andre, I think we got to start with the Russia-Ukraine mm-hmm. escalations that we've seen over the past month, uh, basically a few months. And so the latest update, uh, I guess maybe just a summary for all of you who may not be completely caught up. So essentially, we have over 175,000 Russian troops amassed on Ukraine's borders. Uh, Ukraine, of course, is a direct, shares a direct border with Russia, and Russia invaded Ukraine uh, in 2014, illegally annexed Crimea, and has also invaded and also supported the separatist movements in uh, eastern Ukraine. And now we've seen kind of this escalation, and there are fears both within Ukraine and fears within NATO uh, that Russia may be mounting or preparing for another invasion, a, a further uh, attempt at a land grab or destabilization of Ukraine. And so this has led to you know, both NATO and, and EU uh, condemnations of this action. And uh, Presidents Putin and, and, and Biden had a call on Tuesday where they discussed this issue. Russia, of course, said that it is uh, concerned with Ukrainian militarizations and mobilizations moving more eastward. Uh, they, they said that they are concerned by U.S. and NATO support and military uh, buildups uh, in Ukraine. Of course, I mean, at least uh, to me, and I think most analysts, that is a uh, just a ridiculous assertion by Russia. Um, but it, it seems like Putin might be just really, in, in my mind, seeking some sort of concessions when it particularly with regards to any Ukrainian ambitions to join NATO. But Russia should not be dictating who is and who is is not in NATO. Uh, Andre, putting that aside, uh, it, it does seem like that Russia also wants some security guarantees uh, from NATO to ensure that there won't be more movement uh, eastward. But it, it, I don't know what we can really take away from the call. Well, one of my questions is, in, because I mean, I think there's, U.S. intelligence has said that, the, that Russia could invade the Ukraine in early 2022, but we don't necessarily know what the intentions are. What do you think? Russia actually wants if they actually invade do they actually just want land uh, how much land do they want why do they want this land is this basically part of like you know uh this is this like a greater russia movement is this restoring russia's greatness uh why does putin want to do this is there any question about land with this or is it just these guarantees that you talked about? It's, it's a great question. And this is really what is kind of, this is the argument that's going around policy circles around the world right now is, you know, what are the intentions? So frankly, Russia could invade Ukraine tomorrow. Uh, and Ukraine's it, themselves, their, their Ministry of Defense has admitted that they would be overwhelmed by a Russian offensive. And that is certainly the case. Now, I am hard pressed to believe that Russia is prepared at this moment and has already made a decision on what they're going to do. I think that the current actions right now are to drive a response by NATO, uh, particularly the United States, to see uh, what sort of concessions they can get, what sort of uh, guarantees they can get. 
Um, but uh, again, it's it's hard to see that they've already made a, a determination on invading. If they were to invade, which they certainly could, I, I don't necessarily see that being the case right now. Uh, but my my analysis could change uh, in the coming weeks. Um, there the, in 2014, you can't really compare 2014 with today. Crimea, in particular, uh, was a very distinct campaign to reclaim land that is um, one uh, overwhelmingly Russian and Russian speaking. Uh, it was also at a time where uh, Vladimir Putin was undergoing a lot of domestic troubles um, and also troubles within his own sort of, you know, vertical of power. Um, and I guess, quote unquote, liberating Crimea from the Ukrainian, what they saw as a, you know, a fascist government in, which is completely false. I mean, of course, Ukraine had its uh, its own troubles uh, at that time, domestic turmoil that Russia seized upon. But now there there isn't the same pretext uh, for Russia to to mount such a, a similar offensive. And so right now, I mean, it, it is, it should all be noted that Russia uh, is supporting both financially, politically, and militarily separatist movements in Eastern Ukraine that have been quite difficult for Ukraine to manage. And, and it doesn't seem like Ukraine wants to take those regions back necessarily. Um, but even if they did, it is their territory. And Crimea is also their territory. Um, but it, it seems to be that, you know, de facto, they've decided that, it, that there's not much they can do. They can't reclaim Crimea back. The, these uh, areas controlled by separatists are, are, it's an ongoing war, more or less. And so I, I don't see Putin right now as trying to reclaim more territory. Uh, it's just, it doesn't, I, I don't see it as being a, a realistic ambition. Uh, what I do see being more realistic is more so seeking some sort of agreement uh, with the West. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of problems right now, both between the U.S. and Russia, but also when so militarily, when you think about NATO, but also when it comes to energy, this whole mm -hmm. kind of fight over Nord Stream two, that pipeline, Russia is very dependent upon natural resources and exporting them around the world, particularly to Europe. Uh, and so, uh, again, I could be proved wrong, but right now it does not seem. I would be, I would say, uh, my takeaway is that Russia is not planning to invade at this moment just by mm -hmm. the look of it. Uh, and unless something changes, I don't think that's that's the current plan. It's not about a greater Russia right now. So, so you so you mentioned, and I mean, we will see if those uh, predictions yeah. come true, Ryan, uh, as well as your prediction about those motives. But uh, you mentioned in 2014, Putin was, I think, a bit unpopular, right? Or like relatively unpopular uh, amidst his usual high approval ratings. Right now, isn't he also relatively unpopular? He's had some issues with the pandemic. The economy is a bit difficult. Do any of those domestic travails uh, sort of motivate him to engage in actions like this, especially when we've been talking about the Russian opposition, the whole Navalny stuff and so on? Uh, so... Again, I'm going to draw a distinction. Yes, uh, there have been domestic challenges, I think primarily COVID. And then, but I mean, right now, Russia's economy is quite, you know, formidable. And the domestic kind of unrest has been squashed. I mean, Navalny's still imprisoned uh, and he was basically the face of the opposition. And Russia's been taking just, I mean, incredible steps to squash and trample all over the independent media in Russia, civil society in Russia. Um, and so I, I don't see it as being a considerable motivation 
So any domestic issues being that motivating, I think this is more of a, a, a foreign policy issue. Of course, foreign, uh, you know, domestic politics always informs foreign, po- foreign politics or foreign policies of countries, but I don't see that being the primary driver here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Ryan, have you been watching Fox News lately? Oh, don't get me started. I have had, I have gone on and on and on about Tucker Carlson and has basically acting as a mouthpiece of Russian propaganda. He's it's a propagandist of Russia, basically at this point, I think, but what he's been putting out about this Ukraine invasion, potential Ukraine invasion. There, so there are a few things that I have just fundamental just problems. I, it is like I, I am infuriated that one, Tucker Carlson would just say that Russia has legitimate security interests with Ukraine. Ukraine does not. I mean, and apologies to maybe the Ukrainian listeners. I know we have a, you know a handful. Ukraine does not pose a significant security threat to Russia. I mean, it's it's it would be a ridiculous assertion to make that, and that's something that. Tucker Carlson ran on Fox News saying that Putin has a legitimate security interest here. That's crazy. Secondly, saying that, you know, the what 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 would supporting Ukraine do for America? Well, first and foremost, any sort of violation of sovereignty by Russia uh, of a Ukraine or any other country is something that U.S. should be concerned about. Right. I mean, it's not that we necessarily have deep interest in Ukraine's territorial integrity, but what we do have interest in is European security. Right, our our allies, because I mean, Ukraine is not a NATO member, but Ukraine is an ally. We provide security assistance to them, and even more, we have certain values that we try to maintain in in the world. And and in addition to that, if China sees us rolling over and Russia just walking into Ukraine, what are they going to do about Taiwan? I mean, that is just a, a, the biggest signal that we could possibly send is just saying. And, and, the Chi- and the Chinese are certainly paying attention to what's happening with this, especially when it comes to our approach to Taiwan. And I mean, Ryan, and not to cut you off, but I think one of the bylines I saw on one of the screenshots was, quote, NATO seems to exist to torment, well, to, to torment Putin. I hope Fox News gets some good uh, uh, correctors and some proofreaders. But are, are you serious right now? Well, first of all, NATO was created to build a sort of Western alliance against the Soviet Union. Duh. But Putin's tormenting Ukraine right now. Are you serious? It's, it's very, it's laughable. Honestly, that's all I'll say. Uh, the fact that, again, Russia has a very effective propaganda regime, whether it's their own media, so internal state media, but also English speaking and other language uh, media. And it, apparently, Tucker Carlson's also included in that. Again, it's just it's sad to see that an American outlet would maybe either willingly or maybe unwillingly, but it seems like it's willingly promote Russian propaganda, maybe just for political gain for the other party. And New- and, and and Newsmax is doing the same thing right now too. They put a beautiful cover story about Putin the Great and so on, or Vlad the Great. And I mean, what's shocking, and I don't usually like to get political on these podcasts because we like to give it sort of in an apolitical way. But I mean, this is just, you know, straight up. I mean, it's preposterous that people will criticize the president for trying to engage in this issue. And then the same people will likely be like, oh, if there are tanks rolling through Kiev, then it's Biden's fault. Okay. Are you serious right now? You're, you're, this is, I mean, hyper-partisanship is going to be the end of our proper foreign policy in many ways. It really yeah, will. Yeah, I mean, we, we can go on and on and on about this. We've done a, a handful of episodes on Russia. So for those of you listening who want to learn more, just a, a broader kind of have interest in this issue, I suggest you check those out. 
Um, but let's move on. So yeah, yeah, we'll move on. So in line with Russia and China, we're prepping for the Alliance of the sort of the Democracy Summit, not the Alliance of Democracies, but the Democracy Summit. But the Alliance of Democracies, Reimagining inter- International Institutions, was the name of a previous podcast episode we did with Ash Jane and Ambassador Daniel Fried from the Atlantic Council. So I suggest you all go and listen to that to sort of contextualize what we're going to talk about with regards to this democracy summit. But President Biden is going forward with that democracy summit. Pakistan pulled out of the democracy summit because they cited the exclusion. They, they cited, I think, the recognition of Taiwan uh, being in that summit as detrimental uh, to the summit. And they also didn't like that Russia and China weren't uh, there. And as we know, Pakistan is very much a good friend of China. China has helped Pakistan a lot. Uh, And obviously, they're doing this because they don't want to piss off China and so on, which intrigues me for my own South Asian interests, because Biden did not invite uh, Sri Lanka, which is a democracy, technically. Uh, And I'd love to see what had happened if Sri Lanka had been invited and they had also sort of go the way of Pakistan if they'd actually do it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is going forward. But the Pakistan thing is very interesting, but sort of expected when you really look at it. I mean, I think even in addition to that being significant, Hungary and Turkey not being present Um, and and basically Hungary trying to basically prevent the EU from going as well. Um, Hungary is not a democracy. Neither is Turkey. Both of them are technically allies of the United States. And so it's a, quite a signal that neither of them uh, were included. Of course, I don't think they should be. In the, pra- in, the, in the practicalities, Ryan, they aren't a democracy. It's like in the practicalities, Russia isn't a democracy, even if they have elections. Democracy is more about having elections. Just so I pointed that to our listeners who may disagree with us. Well, I mean, yes. So democracy, you know, depending on your definition, could be as large as including, you know, upholding human rights. Um, but when you don't have free and fair elections, I'm hard pressed to call you a democracy. Yeah. So um, anyway, Andre, let's move on to an, another issue that is uh, Iran. And so there have been a lot of conversations about a, a nuclear deal round two uh, after the Trump administration pulled out of it. Uh, but there are conversations about the U.S. and Israel holding military exercises. It's a possibility to prepare for a worst case scenario where they would have to destroy Iran's nuclear facilities. And so this is something that is being floated uh, between the two countries. Um, For all of you listening, there have been a resumption, but it also seems like a a stalling already of a a nuclear negotiation. Uh, The IAEA, which kind of regulates international nuclear uh, proliferation um, and, and facilities, has said that Iran has basically processed enrichment of uranium up to 20% at its uh, Fordo plant, which is in the mountains, which makes it even more difficult to destroy if that were something that uh, maybe US or Israel or maybe jointly even contemplated. Um, but uh, the, the challenge is, is that the administration has to come to some sort of agreement with Iran because if they're able to come to a nuclear weapon, which it certainly seems like they will be able to do, that not only brings Israel's security into question, which the U.S. is committed to supporting, but it also threatens the security of, of other countries that we uh, are al- allied with, as well as our own security, and because we have a lot of facilities and troops in the region. And there was a great Washington Post piece, right? I think I sent this to you. I sent you the Twitter thread that corresponded with it, 
uh, talking about, you know, Netanyahu was opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. He worked very hard to torpedo it. But many former officials are actually uh, sort of saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't have done that because now Iran is actually closer to developing a weapon. Exactly. So, I mean, listen, there, there are a lot of criticisms and I had my own criticisms of, of the nuclear deal. Uh, but what it did is it it relieves sanctions in order uh, for some guarantees by Iran. Now, some people may say that Iran wasn't abiding by those, but I think experts overwhelmingly have agreed that Iran was not enriching uranium to a, a, a dangerous level, one that could be managed and that you could track whether or not they could get to a bomb. And now it's the Wild West. We have no ability uh, to prevent Iran from getting a, a nuclear weapon other than taking one, military action, or two, uh, another diplomatic agreement. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we'll be paying attention to what's been going on with Iran and any potential nuclear news that might happen. But uh, Ryan, are you getting ready to watch the Olympics on NBC? Uh, I think I'm boycotting. Or you're boycotting watching the Olympics? No, I'm not actually boycotting the Olympics, but I am. Se- I'm going to support our. I'm going to support our American athletes. Right? I am too. What What I'm really doing, Andre, is setting up a conversation about the American boycott and some. Well, thank you for setting that up. <laughs> well, you know, I actually really enjoy the Olympics, and I I personally like the Winter Olympics more than the Summer Olympics, uh, given my love for you go skiing. For skiing, yep, and and hockey, um, and speed skating. It's such a weird sport, and also, um, what's the What's the one where you're on like the ice and you shuffle the little brooms and like why can't I think of it right now? Hockey? No, no. <laughs> Hockey has sticks. The ones with the brooms. I'm not sure. Uh, well, the one with the brooms and the ice and the the things. Anyway, yeah, whatever that's called. Uh, so right, Ryan. So we announced that diplomatic boycott of uh, the Olympics. Uh, Senator Romney, by the way, who organized the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City, supported this move. As did many others, because they said we should take action, but we shouldn't hurt our athletes who have been training for years to participate in the Olympics. But Ryan, you you told me France had some interesting comments, right? Uh, Yes, France did. But let me first say it's curling for all of those of you yelling into your phones trying to say, Ryan, you're you're dumb. It's curling. How do you not know this? Uh, Apologies to my Midwestern brethren and also the Canadians uh, right above me. Uh, for getting that wrong. But yeah, so France said uh, that a diplomatic boycott is, quote, insignificant and merely symbolic, close quote. Essentially, (laughs) President Macron (laughs) of France is saying that either do a complete boycott or nothing. And Andre, we talked about this, I think, last week where we said, well, that just hurts the athletes. It's it's of course, it's symbolic. I mean, that's the point is so the international community knows that the U.S. and some other countries are directly opposed to going to Beijing because of human rights violations, particularly when it pertains to the Uyghurs uh, and uh, security clampdowns in in Hong Kong. And so, listen, I think it's very appropriate to have a diplomatic boycott. It is symbolic, but I don't think it's insignificant. I mean, Beijing does everything they can to save face, and this hurts them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd like for our athletes to be in the Olympics, because one, they've worked very hard for this, but two, I'd also like to rub it in everyone else's faces, how many medals we win, how many golds we win, uh, and be like, hey, this is what democracy brings you, athletic <laughs> people who can do well and beat all you others. Uh, well, unfortunately, some uh, autocratic countries are quite good at the Olympics. Just look at, look at Russia and China, they're, they're quite successful every year, but I do agree. Um, democracy 
um, can be won over through sport. It's happened before. Yeah, the hockey team, the hockey game from 1980. But yeah, oh, Miracle on Ice. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, so all that's happening with the Olympics, Ryan. I think we'll begin to wrap it up. But uh, before we do. Uh, so former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole died uh, earlier this week. He was a war hero, a strong, in my view, American patriot, uh, someone who almost represents a bygone era. So Ronald Marks, who we had on the podcast, I think maybe a few months ago now, uh, he's been a friend of the podcast. He served as a Senate liaison for five CIA directors and was the Intelligence Council to two Senate Majority Leaders, one of them being Bob Dole. Uh, and Ron had a great relationship with Senator Dole, and uh, we had Ron record a few minutes of his views and thoughts on the Senator's passing and what you know Bob Dole means uh, in the greater context of, of course, of national security, foreign policy, and just the United States. So here is uh, Ron's remarks. Hi, everyone. My name is Ronald Marks, and I served for some 16 years as an officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, five and a half of those years, I was in Senate uh, Congressional Affairs, Senate Liaison. Uh, and then two years after that, I went to work on Capitol Hill for uh, Robert Dole, who just recently passed away here in the last few days. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Robert Dole, the kind of man he was, uh, what it was like to work for him, and then uh, what the relationship was after I left the Hill. Uh, he was already a legend by the time I ran into him in 1990. Uh, he was, by that point in time, the Senate, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, and uh, was working very hard uh, on uh, essentially recovering from a, a loss in a presidential campaign a couple of years before. Um, but uh, very bright, very personable, uh, very much interested in intelligence where I was. Uh, and since my job was to liaise between the CIA and Capitol Hill, uh, in a time where uh, we were beginning to rebuild relationships that had been damaged uh, previously uh, under the Bill Casey administration. This is under William Webster that I worked to begin with. Um, he was an interesting fellow, and he was a lot of fun, and he would run into me in the hallway and ask questions uh, and, um, and sort of want to know what the business was all about. Uh, but we both grew up in small towns, and, uh, and we just hit it off. So in 1994... Uh, when he uh, was elected uh, at that point, Senate Majority Leader, the Republicans took control of the United States Senate. Uh, I literally ran into him in the hallway uh, down in the Capitol, and he said to me, in that wonderful uh, Kansas accent, which I will not imitate, um, uh, how'd you like to come to work up here? And I said, what all good staffers should say to that kind of question or that, uh, that inquiry, which is, yeah, absolutely. So I went to work for, uh, for him uh, in February of 1995. Uh, I came in as assistant to the National Security Advisor uh, and then Intelligence Council as well. And I really worked with him on, on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, he was very busy, obviously, but he would stop by my desk occasionally and ask me a few things that were going on. And uh, really, it was sort of a pleasing relationship for a senator because a lot of them up there are very busy. Some of them aren't very kind to staff. Uh, but I found that uh, that he was very open. Uh, my favorite part of uh, my day, in fact, would be maybe a couple of times a week. Uh, he'd come and sit at an empty desk behind me. Uh, we were in an office just off the rotunda of the Capitol, and he'd just start to talk. And we'd talk about sports. We'd talk about politics or whatever else. He and I and a few others there. 
Um, when he left the Hill uh, in 1996, uh, I was on the floor when that happened. And uh, when he left that day, and he was clearly, you know, ready to go for uh, running for president. But at the same time, I could tell he was going to miss the Hill. So um, the election did not go his way. Uh, president Clinton was reelected. Uh, I think he knew that in his heart of hearts. And uh, about maybe about four or five months after the election, I decided I would get down and see him. Uh, in his new office space. And it was mostly just to pay a courtesy, hoping he was doing okay. Um, not really knowing what I was going to get into and, uh, and or how he was feeling. But in fact, he was very chipper. Um, he was, you know, talkative about his new ventures and where he was going to go and what he was going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, wanted to know what I was doing and what I was working on. And it was, a, it was a lovely hour we spent together, probably more time than we had together when we were uh, crashing uh, through all the kinds of uh, things that one crashes through in the Senate um, every day. So we continued that relationship. And he was actually very supportive of my career. He, on one occasion, uh, tried to get me a job as the staff director of the Senate Intelligence Committee, set up an interview for me, recommended me. A uh, couple of other occasions, he had recommended me successfully sort of some other things. Uh, in fact, and, um, you know, again, it was, I never really wanted anything out of him, but he was more than kind enough to offer this kind of help. Um, and I was, I was happy to accept it. And I think he enjoyed doing that. He enjoyed helping other people. I think that's what he was ultimately all about. Um, later on, uh, as he grew older and perhaps a little more infirmed, uh, a little less busy, um, it turned from a relationship of a mentor, of an advisor, it was still to some extent, but 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 really a, a, a friend where we would sit and just, you know, talk. Uh, we would talk about politics. We would talk about his favorites uh, in whatever the current administration was and catching up a little bit on uh, some of the issues of the day. He was very focused on finishing the World War II Memorial, uh, but also the Eisenhower Memorial as well uh, that he's been involved in or was involved with. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking that and, uh, and just sort of generally shooting the breeze. I, I didn't want to bother him a lot because I figured he was quite busy. But once every few months, I get the phone call from the staff and they would say that, uh, uh, come on down. He wants to see you. And so I, I, mean, I would. Uh, and we'd spend some great times together. And in the last year or so, as the illnesses began to, to creep up on him, um, we talked a little bit more about our lives growing up, et cetera. Um, he was very, very curious about how my uh, my stint as a uh, uh, as a uh, senior fellow at the Dole Institute in Kansas had gone uh, gone pretty well and apparently they, they liked me out there and, uh, and he had some very nice things to say about it so it was a it was a working relationship it was a mentor relationship um, but ultimately it was friendship with a guy who was bright and smart and had some overcome some some awful tragedies in his life uh, literally almost losing his life uh, in World War II, but uh, living onward uh, for almost 80 years after. Uh, I'm sure he'd probably be a little disappointed that he didn't quite make uh, Pearl Harbor Day, but uh, but I know him well enough right now. He's probably got a Senate committee together somewhere and uh, sitting chewing fat with the boys and, uh, and enjoying himself. Uh, it was a life well lived. Uh, I would hope that uh, the young people out there have an opportunity at some point to have someone like him in your life. Um, he was very special and uh, I will miss him a lot. Uh, as you're seeing me here right now, I've just come back down from the rotunda of the Capitol where he's lying in state. Uh, and I'll be attending his funeral tomorrow uh, at the Washington Cathedral. And I'm, and I'm 
I'm glad to attend those events. I'm, I'm sorry I've lost my friend, um, but, uh, but I know that, uh, that we had him here for a while and, uh, and that was a pretty good gift. So anyway, I hope you, uh, hope you all have a chance, like I said, in your life to have someone like that. Um, you all take care and uh, I will uh, talk to you soon. So Ryan, uh, certainly the passing of a great American, and I think there's much we can learn from Senator Dole's example, even if you disagree with him politically. Uh, but th that's all we have for now. Uh, we have a great episode coming out on Monday with Douglas London, who spent 34 years in the CIA and is the author of the book, The Recruiter. So that'll be releasing on Monday. We have a lot of other great episodes that'll be that are in the lineup. We had, again, a great November. Uh, so please check those episodes out. All right. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and stay up to date. Uh, follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. And until next week, you've been listening to What in the World.